On Sunday mornings for the past several weeks, we've been studying through the book of Mark here. Tonight we're going to continue in our study with Mark in a passage that brings us to this event, Friday afternoon. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 27. If you would like to turn there, you're more than welcome to. In verse 21, it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. We do not know who Simon was. We do not know his sons, Alexander and Rufus. We can infer that they were known to the recipients of this letter, probably Christians in Rome. We do not know for certain, but we do know that Cyrene is a town, a city in Africa, in Libya, that had been established by the Greeks several hundred years prior, and that this man was possibly, probably on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The African race is named supposedly in the Bible more than any other race of man except for the Jews. And here this man found himself at an opportune time to be compelled to pick up the cross of Jesus and carry it to Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion, because of the weakened condition of Jesus. He had been so abused over the past several hours, he did not have energy enough to carry the cross any farther. And so they compelled this man to carry it. His weakness was in fulfillment of the prophecy that God had given a thousand years prior through the psalmist. When it says in Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. He was completely exhausted. Back in Mark 15, verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They crucified him. And 1,200 years prior, it had been prophesied in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Hundreds of years before crucifixion had been developed as a means of execution, and over a 1,000 years before it was used as a state-approved means of execution, already prophesied the means by which the Son of Man would be put to death. And here at the base of the cross were a group of pagans who had never read the holy books. They did not know what had been prophesied, but they fulfilled prophecy because in Psalm 22 verse 18 it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is exactly what the Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross that day. Jesus hanging on the cross, watched them. And he wasn't feet and feet up in the air. He was right here. And when people walked by and they spit on him, he was right here. And they reached up and plucked his beard out and hit him and made fun of him. He was right here in their face. And Jesus watched as these cast lots for his clothes. It says in verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, that's interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us it was the third hour when they put him on the cross. But in John 19, 14, it says it was the sixth hour of the day when Pilate brought him out to the Jews and said, what do you want me to do with this guy? According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, that's been, that's been gone for hours now. There's quite a discrepancy here until we recognize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are using a Jewish clock which reckons the beginning of the day at six in the morning. While John, who's writing many years later, is using a Roman clock, Jerusalem has already been destroyed, He's writing to a Roman audience. He uses their clock, which reckons the beginning of the day starting at midnight, which is ours. 
And so in John 19, when he said it was the sixth hour of the day when Pilate brought him to the Jews, he's talking about six in the morning. And in Mark, when it says on the third hour of the day they crucified him, he's talking on a Jewish clock. And so it's talking nine in the morning. There is no discrepancy there. Verse 26, it says, And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. This is in agreement with prophecy written over 700 years prior by Isaiah in chapter 53, when it says in verse 12, He was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 9, it says, They made his grave with the wicked. Another 500 years before that, it says in Psalm 22, Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. And these two who are hanging next to him, they're going to get involved in the mocking and the the rioting and the jeering here in just a few minutes. Verse 29, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They said, If he had just come down, we could believe. But Jesus looked at his disciples and said, You know, it's those that have not seen and still believe. They're the ones who are blessed. And what had these people already seen? The miracles they had seen, the the starving fed, the the dying healed, the deaf hearing, the dead raised, and on and on they had seen. They had chosen not to believe, and now they're mocking him. They're not serious about this. They're just mocking. Come on down, and then we'll believe. But this is to fulfill prophecy again in Psalm 22 when it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Continues in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry we will never understand apart from hell itself. Because we get to enjoy the the beauty of his creation and the presence of his mercies. And yet Jesus in this cry is remembering the words spoken thousand years prior. When the psalmist wrote, my God, Psalm 22, 1, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet David when he said, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Imagine the mockery going on here. Let's see if Elijah's going to save him now. And they're right here. They're in his face. Mocking him. 
verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the agony he endured was prophesied in stark terms when it says in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. Imagine the physical agony he's enduring. The weight of gravity pulling all of his joints to their extreme limits. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Mark 15, 38 is an interesting verse. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, there are three curtains that are talked about in the Bible. One is the curtain at the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was, it was 15 feet tall. It's taller than I could reach. Second one was in the temple of Solomon. That, that, that veil was 45 feet tall. But this is Herod the Great. This is the temple of Herod the Great, and he wanted greater than anything that had ever been before. This veil is 60 feet tall. And the Bible says it was torn from the top to the bottom because God is letting us know there, there's a free access now into my presence. There, there's, there's no hindrance anymore. You have permission to come into the presence of God now because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He tells us clearly in Hebrews 10, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by that new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, which is through his flesh. And friends, when he died and that curtain was torn from top to bottom, that separation between us and God that had existed since the garden, when we looked at God who said, let's have fellowship, and we looked at him and said, no, we don't want fellowship with you. He looked at us and said, okay, kick us out. And friends, that separation between us and a loving, holy Father that had been in existence for, since we looked at Him and rejected Him with everything we had, Jesus has now taken that separation. He has paid the penalty for our sin so that if we will give Him our life, if we'll come to Him and say, I confess that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, that we will have eternal life. This is God saying, you're welcome in my presence again. You're, you're welcome to come back into my presence because of what Jesus has done. And he did this so that he could reconcile in Colossians chapter 1. Reconcile us in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you know what it's like to stand in the presence of the Father and hear Him say, clean? <laughs> Isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to go to sleep at night and not be kept awake by a guilty conscience? Isn't it a wonderful thing to have experienced forgiveness of sin because of what Jesus did for us on the cross? And now to be able to come into the presence of the Father and enjoy His company, to be welcomed there and declared clean in His presence. Have you experienced that in Christ? If not, you can tonight. By his looking at Him and in honesty saying, God, I've done it. I, it was my sin that put Him there. I have sinned. God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me of my sin. And now, Father, I give you my life. I give you my life. I'll do what you tell me to do. Please, God, just use me. And friends, by that confession, he invites us into 
his presence. And after he had died, the Bible says in Mark fifteen thirty nine, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The first to confess the deity of Jesus was not one of his countrymen. It wasn't one of his disciples. It wasn't someone in his family. It was a pagan. It was a foreigner. It was the executioner. It was the one who had carried out the sentence written against this man. And what a testimony for the executioner to be the first to recognize the folly of the sentence he had just carried out. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Men were known to last days and days on the cross. At one time there were 5,000 crosses lining the Apian Way heading up to Rome. With people hanging on every one of them. 5,000 people being crucified at a time. And they could last for days on there. But Jesus had died not because of the agony of the physical torture he had endured, but because of the depth of spiritual separation and death he had experienced. Pilate didn't believe it, and so summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. This was an extremely expensive tomb. Not everyone could afford to have their own tomb hewn into the side of a rock. And yet Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, went and got his body, which was in agreement with the word of the Lord, spoken 700 years earlier. In Isaiah 53, when it says, And they made his grave with the wicked when he hung on the cross there. And then it says, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And verse 47 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid.
Imagine in 24 short hours, they had gone from ready to storm the gates of hell with the bread and the blood of a new covenant, to now seeing their king dead and buried in a tomb. I wonder how they felt that night. I wonder where they skulked away to. I wonder how they tried to hide themselves. And yet we know what happened here in just a few hours. Just a third day away and Jesus is rising from the dead. We invite you to come back on Easter Sunday. Bring somebody with you so that we can celebrate the greatest day in the history of humanity when the dead got up. The resurrection of Jesus. This Sunday, come celebrate it with us. You guys are a blessing. You're dismissed.